I always love that buzz. I love that buzz of people talking and sharing. And uh, uh, I, I, uh, I always think, boy, when we get to the point where we don't have that, that's probably a mark of unhealthiness when that buzz is not there and probably a good mark of health uh, when you have to uh, get people back in their seats because they're, uh, they're talking and sharing. And, and I, I say it often, and I, I probably say it often because I really believe it to be true. Uh, this is one of the highlights of my week. You say, well, this is the only day you work, so uh, you know, it should be. That's not true, all right? But it is the highlight of my week, and I'll tell you why it's the highlight of my week, because uh, I get to see people that I love and I care about. And uh, you know, and as we do life uh, together, um, that's one of the benefits that come uh, with that. And when you do life together, uh, you have conflict from time to time with the people that you love and you care about, but because you love them and you care about them, you work through that conflict. I say to people all the time that uh, you really ought to look like, if Northwest is your home, you really ought to look like it, look at it uh, biblically just like you look at your family, uh, that we don't just walk out or leave one another when there's conflict. Uh, we work through it. Uh, we deal with it because we love one another and we're committed uh, to one another. And uh, I see evidence of that in this place uh, all the time, and I'm thankful for that and, uh, and thankful for you. Well, I don't know if you've uh, noticed, uh, but we have a lot of kids around here. In particular, we have a lot of babies. Uh, we have a lot of babies that are still in the oven. You'll notice that uh, from time to time uh, around here. Uh, but just uh, this week, uh, two of our young couples uh, gave birth to their first uh, children, Simon James Wong. And I've said for a long time, you know, I, uh, I've known Sam since he was in middle school. And obviously you can tell by the last name Wong that he's Asian, right? I mean, that kind of gives it away a little bit there. And I said, if that baby does not have a full head of black hair, I'll be shocked. And sure enough, all 10 pounds, 5 ounces of him, yeah, was covered with black hair on that top of that head. And so uh, we uh, congratulate uh, them uh, this morning. And the Gemmas as well gave birth to a son, Quentin Oliver. And uh, we're excited for them. So... Uh, they're not here this morning, and I'm not sure about that. We're going to have to find out what's going on. But, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully next week uh, uh, they'll, be, they'll be back with us. If you get an opportunity to congratulate them, I know they'd appreciate a card and uh, appreciate your prayers, right? Parents, as they transition into, you know, you anticipate, and then it comes, and you're going, what have I done, right? That happens too. Uh, so uh, let's be praying for them, congratulating them, and that's just exciting to have these two uh, young baby boys uh, that are part of our uh, family here at Northwest. Well, several years ago, a good friend of mine uh, and I were attending a pastor's conference in the L.A. area. Now, I, always, I know it's always kind of one of those things where you go, yeah, you're attending a conference in the L.A. area. You know, are you really attending a conference? It's kind of like when those people go to Vegas for conferences, okay? We really know what they're going to Vegas for. The conference ended on a Friday, and we decided to stay for a few extra days, and uh, we were going to take some time for pastoral rest and relaxation, and we felt the best place to do that, at least one of the best places to do that, would be at an L.A. Lakers uh, game. Uh, that's just how we pastors roll. That's what we do. And so that's where we went. I, I remember looking back that the game that day really was actually not that exciting. Um, but we had been told that if we went to a certain place after the game that we could see some famous people. Um, 
I don't know if you're like me, but I, I've had this problem for a long time. I love sitting in airports just looking at people. Is anybody else with me? I mean, I just need to tell you that. That's probably why I'm a, a fan of Survivor and some of those shows, because I've kind of got a little bit of, you know, I just, I like peering into other people's lives, right? You say, that's why you're a pastor. That's why, you know, that's not the reason, all right? But I, I thought, well, it'd be great to see some famous people. And, you know, during the game, you see them up on the big screen. They'll focus in on somebody. But, but I wanted really to see and, and maybe even touch, you know, a, a famous person. I thought that would be kind of cool. And so we asked an usher, hey, where would be the best place to go so that we could see these people, whoever these people are, you know, whoever decided that they should be famous, you know, maybe somebody should decide I should be famous, I don't know. He said, if you go to this particular place when you exit the Staples Center, if you go over there, a lot of them, they exit through this door to avoid uh, the big crowds, but there's always a crowd of people that are waiting at that door. And so uh, we uh, eagerly anticipated the end of the game. Uh, so that we could go out and we could see these famous uh, people. And sure enough, when we got to that area, there was a large crowd of people. And we kept watching to see if we recognized anybody. Have you ever been told that somebody's famous and you're going, I don't have a clue who that is? You know? Uh, I don't know if that's my definition of fame, if I don't know who you are. Um, but all of the sudden, who do we see but Sylvester Stallone? I mean, the Italian stallion. Rocky Balboa is in the house. And I am pumped up because I am a Rocky fan. Uh, there is not a weekend that goes by that there's not some TV station that's not running a, a, a Rocky weekend, you know, where you can just keep seeing the movies back to back. Anybody with me on that? You've watched them? Yeah. All the guys are raising their hands. We've done that. And so I thought, there's Sly. There's Sylvester Stallone. Rocky Balboa. And so we had to hurry down the line of people because it was several people deep and he started walking out with his wife to a, to a limousine. And, and before I knew what was happening, my pastor friend uh, who was with me, who tends to be as extroverted as I am, he yells out, Yo, Adrian! And the next thing I know, he is right beside him. He's kind of nuzzled up next to him to give him a man hug. You know what those are, right? Guys, we don't hug like this. You know, you just kind of come up beside and, you know, you kind of, kind of squeeze him a little bit. And I'm going, what are you doing? He said, I wanted to touch him. And he did. And I thought, we're going to die. And uh, we, we, we didn't. And uh, that was the closest encounter I've really had with uh, Hollywood royalty. Uh, that is until I met Ben Stein at an airport. Um, and that's a whole other story. I'll save that uh, for another time. Some of you, though... You can relate to that story because you know what it's like to anticipate meeting someone that you've heard so much about. And today we're going to uh, look at a man whose encounter with Jesus uh, turned out to be actually more than anything he could have ever uh, imagined. Now, if you're a new Christ follower or you've not yet crossed the line of faith, um, you might not be real familiar uh, with this story. But I want you to turn to Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke was a doctor and I always like Luke's encounters in the gospel because he has a way of being very descriptive, all right? I'm sure when he wrote uh, the book of Luke, uh, his handwriting was not so good, right? I mean, that's typical of a doctor, right? We get that. Uh, but he was very descriptive. If you've ever looked at a doctor's notes in your charts uh, at, uh, at your doctor's office, you know, they keep very detailed records. And that's why I appreciate uh, Luke's uh, records uh, in the gospel. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter uh, 19, and uh, we're going to go through uh, these first uh, several verses here in Luke 19. 
Uh, The text starts out by saying he entered Jericho and was passing through. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is traveling through southern Palestine, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And this trip, it's important for you to understand this context here. This trip that Jesus is on is going to culminate in his death, and then three days later, ultimately, his resurrection. Uh, and as he travels, uh, Jesus is making the most of every opportunity. Now, I've, I've thought about this a lot this week, what it must have been like for Jesus. This isn't the first time that I've thought about this, but what it must have been like for Jesus those few days before he knew that he was going to suffer and bleed and die on a cross. Can you, can you stop for just a moment and contemplate what it must have been like for him? We do have some record in the Gospels that it was very agonizing for him. In fact, um, he, he, he wanted, he prayed, God, if there's, if there's some other way to do this, then, then, then let's do that. Because he wasn't looking forward to the cross. He, he certainly, as the Son of God, was looking forward to what the cross meant for mankind. It meant redemption. But he wasn't looking forward to the painful death that he was going to die, to the agonizing death that he was going to experience. And so as he travels along, I, I thought this week, what would my attitude be like? I, I, I really believe that I would be totally absorbed thinking in just a few days from now, I'm going to hang on a cross. I don't think I really would have had much time to be concerned or consumed with people and their petty little problems, right? I mean, you're looking at a, at a, at a blind man or, or, or you're looking at somebody who's got some other issue and you're going, hey, that's nothing in comparison to what I'm about ready to experience. And yet I'm amazed as I read this particular text. If you, if you go back into chapter 18 and you look at verse 31 and how Jesus begins to tell his disciples what's going to happen and you remember the disciples said, no, that's not going to happen to you. That's not going to happen. We don't like that idea. Jesus knows what's going to happen and yet he makes the most of every opportunity to minister to people along the way as he's headed toward Jerusalem. And so he comes to Jericho. It's known as the City of Palms lies deep in the Jordan Valley. It's a rich agricultural town and a popular resort for royalty and for priests. In fact, I found out this week about half of Israel's priests actually live there. I don't know what that says about spiritual leaders, that they find the posh resort and that that's where they go to live, but that's what they did. And no doubt many of those priests and other people in that area have heard that Jesus is going to come through into Jericho and so they're eagerly anticipated and interested in seeing him. Jericho is a border town. It's a hub of of commerce. And it's the place where Jesus will really experience one of his last ministry moments, his last ministry encounters. And, And this is an encounter in this particular man's life which ultimately... Um, will have a a huge life-changing impact. Look at verse 2. And there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you knew who Zacchaeus was real early on, right? I mean, you sang the song. I'm not going to make you sing it this morning, but you sang the song. Uh, He was a what? A wee little man. Now, we didn't necessarily understand that word, what it meant when we were little children, but we know now he was a short guy. There was a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. It's very important information that Luke gives us here. You know, the, the Jews, the local Jews, hated and they ostracized those who worked uh, for Rome. 
In particular, in fact, they most despised the people that worked for Rome who were the tax collectors. And they extorted money from people so that they could help fund the Roman army. And the irony of all of that is it was a Roman army that was just wreaking havoc on the people. And they were very oppressive to the Jewish people. And the, the Romans had a, had a real clever way of extorting taxes from the Jews. What they did was they actually farmed out the, taxes of the, 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 the task of collecting taxes um, to the highest bidder. They didn't want to tie up their personnel, so they would come into a town and they would say, how much would you collect our taxes for? And you would negotiate a percentage of which you would take back of the tax that you collected. And, and so uh, the man did not receive any salary for his work, but he collected as much money as he could so that he would be able to meet his quota that he had agreed upon uh, with the Romans. And then everything above that, he was able to keep for himself. In other words, he was free to collect as much as he could from his people to extort taxes from them. And then anything he collected was his to keep personally. Uh, to make it even easier, uh, these tax collectors were actually backed up by the Roman army. Isn't that good, right? Aren't you glad we don't have that with our IRS, where if you don't pay them, they just send the army into your house. You know, they bomb your house. That's kind of what it was like for them. So it was impossible for the Jewish people to actually refuse or to dispute whatever the tax collector felt that they owed. And you think you have a problem with the IRS. You think, you think our IRS is corrupt. It's not hard to imagine, though, why these people had no friends, these tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated. They were ostracized by their own people. Now, here, notice that the text, text says he wasn't just a tax collector, but he was the chief tax collector. And that's important for you to understand. The chief tax collector was the tax commissioner over uh, the district of Jericho. He was over all of the other tax uh, commissioners. So you can imagine that he probably worked out deals with the other guys underneath him that if you get this much, you pay me. A, you know, it's one of those pyramid schemes, right? He was so good at what he did that the Romans actually promoted him to be the, the leader of these corrupt people, the leader of the tax collectors. Uh, think about that. You, you get a promotion and there's no real satisfaction because you have no one to share uh, the fact that you got a promotion because nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. You've got lots of money. In fact, the text says that he was wealthy, but you have nobody to share that with. You see, Zacchaeus had become wealthy because he had victimized his own people. And I really believe that based on the text, at least as we see it right here at the beginning of chapter 19, that he really didn't care. At least it appears that way. Because he had money. But let's read on. Maybe not all is well in the life of our local tax collector, Zacchaeus. Verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. I love, again, the way Luke records things in the Gospels. Uh, because he doesn't just say he wanted to see Jesus. He tells us that he was short in stature. That's like saying uh, the guy tried to make his way through the crowd, but he was fat, and he couldn't. All right? Luke is giving us very descriptive information here that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was having difficulty because he was small in stature. He was a, he was a little man. Now, that phrase intrigues me that he was trying to see Jesus. You see, a tax collector wouldn't be one of the ones that would want to be confronted with this man named Jesus. 
This is late in Jesus' ministry, in his three years of ministry. He's about a week or so away from the cross. The word has spread. People know who he is. People know that he can tend to be just a little bit confrontational. And now Zacchaeus says, I want to see this guy. This corrupt tax collector wants to see Jesus. Why does he want to see him? This is one of those things where someday when I get to heaven and I sit down with Luke, I'm going to say, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us really why he wanted to see Jesus? We can only speculate. I've thought about it this way. Maybe his pursuit of wealth is not everything that he thought it would be. Maybe he still feels empty inside. After collecting all this wealth from his people, maybe he recognizes, I have no friends, everybody hates me, I have no ability to be able to enjoy all my wealth with, and maybe he's empty. I would say to you this morning, just kind of as a side note, that some of us who live in Cary, North Carolina, are going to find that out one day. You see, someday we're going to accumulate all of the things that the world says we need to have, only to find out that satisfaction and happiness are only realized when we, feel, when we fill the void in our life, and that's a void that money and things can never satisfy. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes said it this way in chapter 5 and verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. You see, some people treat money as though it were a god. In fact, I think that, that that's what Zacchaeus did. That's the only reason you could do what he was doing and others like him were doing with their people. They, they love it. They make sacrifices for it. And they think that it can do anything for them. Their minds are filled all the time with thoughts about it. Their lives are controlled by getting it and guarding it. And when they have it and they, they, they think that they experience some sense of security, and that really is what faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to do for a Christ follower. We're supposed to find our security in our relationship with him, not only eternally, but even in this present life. That's what faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means for a Christian. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, how often we hear people say, well, money may not be the number one thing in my life, but it's uh, it's it's way ahead of whatever is number two. The person who loves money can't be satisfied no matter how much is in his bank account because the human heart was made to be satisfied only by God. Again, the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, verse 11, uh, said it this way, he has set eternity in our hearts. That's why when you hear people say, well, I'm a seeker, I'm, eternity is in the heart. That's why you think about eternity. That's why you think about death. Luke 12, chapter, Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, warned Jesus, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. First, the person loves money, and then he loves more money, and the disappointing pursuit has begun that can lead only to all sorts of problems. And I believe that there's a good chance that that's where Zacchaeus was. He had wealth. He had everything that his heart could desire living in that town of Jericho, and yet, for whatever reason, he felt empty inside. Relationally, we certainly know he was destitute. Number two, maybe uh, he uh, had heard about Jesus, and maybe he actually, in fact, I thought about it this week, maybe he actually had heard about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Remember we talked about last week? (laughs) 
Maybe he heard and thought, well, if Jesus will talk to a, a woman like that at the well, maybe he'd talk to a person like me. I like that. I like that because that's still true today. So look what he does in verse 4. It says, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted. No, it's not how it goes. He climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. Now here's what you need to understand. Going back to this culture, it is in the, in the east, it is unusual for a man to run, especially a wealthy government official. And that's the irony, again, of what's going on here. And yet, here's this short little guy, okay? Those of you with vivid imaginations, picture the short little guy, okay? Now, this is Mr. Roloff on Little People, Big World, okay? Picture him. He's just running down the street because he wants to see Jesus. And all of his Jewish friends are looking at him and they're going, that's Zach. That's the guy. That's the guy that's been taking my money. What is he doing? What is he... He's running down the road because he wants to see Jesus. He's like a little boy following a parade because he was desperate to see Jesus. And then I love, again, Luke's description. It's not just he was running to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. It's like he climbed up into a tree. He got up into a tree. He had to because he was small in stature, and he got up into a sycamore tree to be exact. Now, if you know anything about a sycamore tree, a sycamore tree has low branches Fans out like this, a little short guy could actually climb up onto those branches and he could get out onto those branches, potentially even a branch that was hanging out over the road. And you can imagine, here he is, he's up in this tree. Some of you, I can tell, you've got those, you know, you've got those, you, you, the picture is running through your mind right now. I wish I could play you video footage, but that was somehow lost, so we don't have that. But here's, here's Zacchaeus, he's up in the sycamore tree, he's got out on a branch, he's out over the road, and now here Jesus comes because he's about ready to pass by that way. You see, curiosity is a characteristic of most children, and Zacchaeus was motivated by curiosity that day. I love what John Calvin wrote, he said it this way, curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. In fact, Jesus said it this way, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall in no way enter therein. I think perhaps more than anything, that's what keeps some successful people from trusting Jesus Christ because they overthink it and Jesus knew that to be true, but not Zacchaeus, <laughs> not on this day. The little short guy was running right next to the crowd and he was going to see Jesus no matter what it took. And he climbed up into that sycamore tree and he got over that road and there came Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. That's basically what he said. See, the song is true to the text. Now here's a really cool observation. Jesus didn't tell him to, Zacchaeus, what you need to do is you need to get to the temple. You dirty, rotten scoundrel, you little tax collector. Who do you think you are? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to go where you are. I'm going to go where you live. I think there's a principle in there this morning that some of us need to get today. You think that the the greatest thing some of us would be if we could get our, our friend who doesn't know Jesus at work to come to church with us. 
We think the greatest thing would be if we could get that, that neighbor that, that we know because we're neighbors with them and we know how they live and we know they need Jesus. We think the greatest thing would be if they just come to church with us, right? If they just sit here and some loudmouth guy like me would just get up and faithfully proclaim the gospel, then their life would change. Let me say to you this morning that maybe one of the greatest things that's being taught in this particular text is that Jesus didn't say, let's go to the temple, let's sit, I'll get the flannel graph out, I'll kind of show you who I am and what this is all about. Jesus says, I'm going to go where you are today. I'm going to go to your house now, don't get me wrong, it's great when you have friends that come and that visit, and I love that, and I love to meet your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. But sometimes that's not the best way to reach people. Sometimes the best way for you and I to reach people is to get into their world, to go where they are, uh, to go uh, to their house, uh, to go to the places that they do life, and then simply be Jesus, live like a Christ follower in those environments. And what's really cool is I love that Jesus demonstrated that for us. Isn't that awesome? That he demonstrated that kind of ministry for us. I'm so thankful that I serve a God who loved me enough to send his son Jesus. And when Jesus did his ministry down here on earth, he did ministry that way. And that's the way we ought to do it as well. Look at what Zacchaeus' response was. It says, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. You got the picture in your mind? Little short guy up on the sycamore tree, hanging out over the road. All of a sudden, Jesus, the Son of God, looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today. And he goes, I'll be right down. And he starts running back on the branch, right down the trunk of the tree. And there he is. Ta-da, I'm here. Do you know where I live? Now, Zacchaeus, at least for just a moment, had to think about, how does this guy know my name? Right? I mean, that's a scary thing. He must have been shocked. How does Jesus know my name? And secondly... What's in the fridge? I thought about that this week. I know that's what my wife would be thinking. I tell people all the time, yeah, just stop by. We'll do something. And she's going, there's nothing in the refrigerator. Now, I don't know how Zacchaeus felt that day, but maybe Mrs. Zacchaeus felt differently. And it's not just like he's bringing some client home. Probably his clients actually didn't want to come home with him. Um, I mean, he's bringing Jesus with him. No doubt his wife had heard about who Jesus was as well. Nobody likes to hang out at Zacchaeus' house. He's a hated man. He's despised. And now, of all people, Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house today. We're going to grill steaks on the... Oh, probably not. We're going to go get back to the culture again. Probably not going to do that. We're probably not going to have any meat. But we're going to do something, all right? We're going to get some fish. And we're going to get some matzo balls. We're going to do something. But we're going to have a meal together today at your house. Now, what's really an ironic thing is that here's Zacchaeus. He's a rich man. He's probably got a big house. He's probably got the big flat screen TVs and everything going on in his, in, his, in his deal where he lives. But he never has any company because people don't like him. Now Jesus is coming over. He's going to visit his house. Big change came to this little man that day. Sometime during Jesus' visit, big change came. Now, again, because I have an imagination, I can just picture Jesus, you know, sitting there at the table and they're talking. So tell me what you do for a living. <laughs> Imagine what that would have been like. Going, you know my name. I think you know what I do. And Jesus probably started talking to him. And can't, can't you just wonder for a moment, did Jesus tell Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, in just a week, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to bleed and I'm going to die for your sins. 
You see, you've been living your life extorting money from your people. You're a sinful man. And in just a week, I'm going to die to pay the debt for your sin. I want to have a relationship with you. Doesn't that, give, that gives me goosebumps just to say that. What that must have been like for Jesus sitting there a week out from his crucifixion. And he's telling Zacchaeus this story. And we obviously know, we're going to find out here in just a verse or two, that some big change happens. Zacchaeus gets it that day when Jesus is, is giving him the gospel and probably telling him what he's going to do. But not everyone's excited about Jesus' ministry encounter. In fact, some of the same people that heard that he talked to the woman at the well, remember last week, that didn't say anything, kept their mouths shut at that particular moment, they didn't exactly do it this time. This time it's different. Look at verse 7. When they saw it, we don't know exactly who the they is, We can only speculate that it's probably, certainly, some of the disciples, if not all the disciples, probably some other people, probably some Pharisees. They all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. You see, this was no surprise, actually. That's been the accusation against Jesus all along. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, reading from the message, Luke said this, by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. Why was that? Because they knew they were sickos. They knew we're messed up people. And so they were hanging out with Jesus and they were listening to every word that he said. And the Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased. Not at all pleased, the message says. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Seems to me like the way that you and I ought to do ministry. Sounds to me like a great thing to be accused of, right? He's hanging out with people that need need what he has to offer. Ponder the last words of that verse uh, for just a moment. These people said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's really convicting to me. And you ask why. Thanks for asking. Because I'm afraid that that's what I do uh, probably on a regular basis. I bet you do as well. We classify certain people as sinners, and we think we're not nearly so bad as they are. Now, you all sit here looking at me as if not I. But don't you, in your mind, have a list of sins that you think are just a little bit worse than other ones? If you do this, if you you do a little bit of gossiping, well, that's, that's bad, but that's not so bad because we all gossip, right? But, but boy, you know, if, if you live a, a lifestyle and you're sexually oriented in another way, then that is, boy, that is a really, really bad sin. And so we look down on those people and we call those people the sinners. Well, we sit smugly by the sidelines as if we are not. It's very convicting to me. I think for some of us this morning... Uh, that really is the biggest obstacle to change in your own life. You, you've become convinced that you're really not that bad since you use other people as a standard rather than God as a standard. You use other people as the standard rather than biblical principles as the standard. You use other people as the standard rather than God's holiness as the standard. And that's a problem. So when you do that, you have a tendency to think, I'm really not so bad. I really don't need to change. 
because I'm not nearly as bad as those people. When in actuality, God doesn't see classes and grades of sin. God sees my gossip. God sees my thoughts that nobody else sees. He sees those just as disgusting as whatever it is that you classify as a disgusting sin. Look at Zacchaeus' response to those who didn't like him. (laughs) I like this. It's as if he goes, I'm going to show you. I've been changed. Look what he says in verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. And if, and by the way, that's a poor translation, okay? If you were reading in the original language this morning, a better translation would be, and since, okay? If doesn't really fit really well there. And if you were looking at the original Greek word, you'd see that since is a better translation there. So read it this way. And since I've defrauded basically everyone of everything, I will give back four times as much. Now here's what you need to understand. Zacchaeus obviously was not saved that day. He didn't come into a relationship with Jesus because he promised to do good works. He was saved because he responded by faith to Christ's gracious word to him. And having trusted in him as his savior, he then gave evidence of a changed life. If we had time, we'd go to the book of James this morning. Some of you are familiar with the text, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, where James talks about the relationship of works to faith. We've mentioned several times already in this series that Uh, Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He is a new creation. There is change that is a coming when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Under the Mosaic law, if a thief were to voluntarily confess his crime, he had to restore what he had taken and add one-fifth to it. And he had to bring a trespass offering to the Lord, Leviticus chapter 6. If he stole something he could not restore... He had to repay fourfold. So in other words, you know, if I uh, stole a rare coin that did not exist anyplace else and we couldn't find it, then I would have to replace the value of the coin times four. And if he was caught with the goods, you know, it's be caught in possession, right? If he was caught in possession of the goods, then he had to repay double. I think it's interesting that Zacchaeus did not quibble over the terms of the law. He offered to pay the highest price because his heart had been changed. That's an incredible thing. He had gained spiritual wealth that day, and he understood that his earthly wealth really wasn't that important anymore. And so if it meant losing everything, then that was fine because he wanted to make things right. And his earthly treasure did not compare to what he had just gotten from Jesus Christ. It's as if Zacchaeus is saying, You can have it all, because I have Jesus. Now, now that is the evidence of a changed life. In fact, Jesus said it all the way through the Gospels when he called his disciples. What did he tell them to do? He told them to leave everything. And if you're not willing to leave everything, then you can't be my disciple. The mark of true discipleship, the mark of true change, is when I'm willing to give everything up, For the sake of knowing Christ, the apostle Paul said that. And so Zacchaeus says, you can have it all back because I have Jesus. You see, some people want to add Jesus to their life just simply as an ornament. (laughs) They want a relationship with God, but only to the extent that it does not inconvenience them or take them off of the throne of their life. 
And let me tell you this morning, if that is the gospel message that you have responded to or that you think saves you and guarantees you an eternity in heaven, you are sadly mistaken. In fact, you are going to be eternally disappointed. The gospel says, I get rid of everything. I'm stripped down to nothing. And it's all about Jesus. St. Augustine said it this way, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Here's the greatest news of all, I think, this morning. This kind of life change really happens all the time. It really does. It's not just a Bible story. Now, people today are still experiencing radical change when they encounter Jesus, and we see it on a regular basis right here at Northwest. Watch this with me. the test for you to read his lips, try to figure out the transformation, the change that's taking place. And now just to look, well, I was going to say now just to look at his bald head up on the large screen. Matt's my friend and he's got a face for radio, that's for sure. He's hey, they tell me that all the time, just saying. God only made a few perfect heads and the rest he put hair on. You just remember that. So. Are we ready, guys? Here we go. My family was very loving. I, uh, I always knew right from wrong. My, my family raised me well. But uh, I was always afraid of making my parents upset. I had a very, very bad uh, temper. Um, I, I thought by cursing and, and drinking and as I got older, the partying in high school and, and things of that nature was, a, was a, a being a man. You know, that's physical strength. Uh, that was a way to be a man. As I grew older, got out of my own. Um, I met my wife uh, in the year 2000. Never in my life thought about life after death or, you know, it was always about me. You know, me, 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 and um, I'm in control. And in 2003, uh, my wife and I, we had, a, uh, we had a miscarriage with twins. It was very hard on my wife. Um, I think always harder on the wife than it is on the husband, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, I tried to be supportive, but I know I wasn't. Um, I worked a lot of hours and I would avoid the house. I would go, I would stay out as late as possible, but she needed me and I wasn't there for her when she needed me the most. In 2008, my wife and I moved to North Carolina. My brother-in-law, um, and his wife had been looking for churches. And he's like, you need to come to this place, this church. We really liked it. We started to go regularly. I loved it. I loved the people there. Um, I still had a lot of doubts, you know, but I loved going. And I looked forward to getting up and going to church in the morning, which has never happened before. So in uh, August of 2011, you know, Brian um, came to the house for dinner and he basically was telling me I need to make a decision. <laughs> you know, are you, are you gonna, when are you gonna cross that line? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, when are, you gonna, when are you gonna admit that you know, Jesus is your savior? And I said, man, I don't know the Bible. I don't, I, don't, I don't know enough yet to be doing that. And he's like, no, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that difficult. It's very simple. Um, you just need to accept, to admit that Jesus Christ is your savior. 
And so he gave me uh, he gave me this booklet, uh, and in it uh, I read it, and it basically talks about the cross that Jesus died for me. And and so at the end of that uh, evening, I, I took the book upstairs and I read it. It says that I believe in Jesus Christ and that He He rose again, that I might have forgiveness for my sins and know Him personally. And it says today I've received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and it I desire to obey Him as my Lord. And so. I go to church that weekend, and I asked Brian, I told him, I said, hey man, I, this is what happened. Everything kind of just became clear, you know, I'm like, the whole time, I look at all the things in my life that have happened, you know, my grandmother passing away, my father changing, we stopped drinking, you know, now everything becomes crystal clear, um, and I look back and I know that Christ was there every moment. So uh, I said, okay, when's the next baptism? Because um, I'm ready. And so uh, uh, August of 2011, I was baptized. And, you know, Mina and I, our relationship is fantastic. I mean, no marriage is perfect. We work, we work, we work at it. Uh, we're learning every day. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thankful for, for all the people that have been in my life uh, that have helped me more, no more than Jesus. I'm Matt Bosman, that's my story. That's life change, right? That's what we're talking about. You know, on any given Sunday morning, there are people that sit here, and, and just last week I had several conversations when I, uh, when I left the auditorium. And you look and you go, well, that can't happen to me, but it can happen to you. In fact, Jesus said in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love verse 10. I've quoted it a lot of times already in this series that Jesus came to save people who are lost. He came to heal people who are sick. And that's me and that's you. I want to ask you this morning before we stand and sing, is your life... You may be here this morning and you may call yourself a Christ follower, but has your life radically changed when you came into relationship with Jesus? Like Zacchaeus' life. The encounter with Jesus that Zacchaeus had demonstrates a life that changed. I want to ask you just simply, real quickly, three questions. Who's in control, you or Jesus? Who do you trust to pay your sin debt, you or Jesus? What or who do you love? That's your God. Because when Jesus radically invades your life, he becomes the center of your life. That's radical change. You can be a different person. You should be a different person. And if your life is not demonstrated by a difference, by radical transformation, then you may have prayed a prayer you may have felt a tingling deep down inside. But my friend, you did not experience the gospel. Because the gospel message brings about radical, radical change in a man's life, and a woman's life. I think that's what the story of Zacchaeus recognizes. That Jesus, right before the cross, he chooses the most despised, the most disgusting people that are in that little town. And he says, come down, I'm going to your house. I'm going to demonstrate for you this morning 
just what can happen when somebody radically encounters the gospel message. That same gospel message has the power to transform and change your life, your friend's life, a family member's life. And I trust that that's the transformation that has taken place in your life. If it's not, I invite you this morning to place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior. To be stripped down of everything else but just Him because it's all about Him. That's what the gospel is.